It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 512 of Accelerate, sales podcast of record where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Hey, if you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, uh, go to anniepaul.com forward slash 512. That's today's episode number. You'll find there a detailed sort of timestamp breakdown of this and all the conversations on Accelerate. So if you heard something and weren't sure where you heard it uh, during the conversation, come back and check it out at anniepaul.com forward slash 512. Check it out. Now, if you like the show, of course, it would help us if you subscribed, left a review for us. You can do that on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, including the podcast app you're using to listen to this on your phone or your, your tablet. So if you go ahead and do that, come right back. We really appreciate it. Joining me on the show for the first time is Stephen Moulton. Stephen's the president of Action Insight and author of the book, The CEO's Advantage, Seven Keys for Hiring Extraordinary Leaders. You know, it's an interesting book. I enjoyed reading it. It lays out Stephen's perspective on what he calls seven fresh leadership skills. I have some thoughts about those that I want to discuss with him. So let's jump right into it. Stephen Moulton, welcome to Accelerate. Well, thank you, Andy. Look, look, glad, glad to be here. Uh, pleasure to have you on the show. So, uh, you know, first, first question I open up with most of my guests on is, is so in your, in your opinion, I know that, you know, sales isn't your Especially per se, though a lot of what you talk about sort of falls over into sales. So, in your opinion, what's what's the single biggest challenge facing a sales professional today? I don't know if it's the single biggest problem. Single biggest challenge, I, yeah. I think one of the realities is pressure from corporate, from senior managers. You know, what are you doing right now? Constant pressure puts people in a panic mode, and when they're in a panic mode. They're ineffective. <laughs> so, so the question about pressure now is is, and this is something people talk a lot about. That yeah, one of the problems that professionals face in general, sales in particular, is this this concept of just being overwhelmed all at all times. Pressure, certain being an element of that, but has this changed? I mean, I mean, I. I grew up in sales, and we certainly felt a certain amount of pressure. Is this, but is, is pressure different or more intense? What's what's happening now? I don't know that it's significantly changed. I think pressure's always been there, but I think that in organizations where a salesperson has been just great year after year, president's club, successful, whatever have you, and all of a sudden they have a bad year. They're doing exactly the same thing they've been doing before. They've been working great. They've been doing all the right things, but the numbers just aren't happening. And what do they get? Pressure. And when that pressure hits, you got to get the numbers. You got to get the numbers. If you don't get the numbers, you're going to get fired. That kind of pressure. What happens is that little lizard brain in the back of our head, that amygdala, that goes into fight or flight. And when that's in fight or flight mode, the logical part of the brain shuts down. They can't think. They can't be effective. And everyone loses. So this is, I mean, this is certainly a cultural issue. But, I mean, it's, it's something that sort of seems like a standard part of our culture. Is, you know, we're, we're in sales. We're meant to, that's why you're paid the big bucks because you're meant to withstand that pressure. But... What you're saying, and I, and I agree with you, is that that's really counterproductive. Right. So how do you how do you change the behaviors of leadership 
to have them say, okay, yeah, maybe there's a better way we can do this. Because I think one of the ways that we're seeing this by default more and more is that given the fact there's you know greater access to data or greater amounts of data uh, about almost every aspect of someone's performance is that that uh, you know we tend to use that that data somewhat indiscriminately yes i agree with that the, the there's a, one of the, some bits of data that can tend to keep jumping out at me for instance when people have a positive outlook about what's going on they're 31% more productive. So just, you're talking about worldview or about in business or both? I think when they, particularly when they're in their team environment, when they're working with their colleagues, their boss, whatever have you, when they have a positive feeling about what's going on within their group and their boss is positive, they're going to be positive and they're going to be more productive. People who are socially interacted acting with their team, helping their team, getting help from their boss, helping their, just pulling the whole thing together. One research study showed that they were 10 times more effective than the people who were in neutral or disengaged. So for a leader, the leader needs to have that perspective of, okay, I'm getting the pressure, but I need to get my people to be productive. So rather than pushing the pressure down, that leader then needs to back off, maintain the trust with their group, and move it forward in a way that's productive rather than having everybody running around like a fire drill. Well, I think one of the interesting things you brought up there, though, that that when you put it sort of in the sales context, is that you know sales is so often perceived as being the sort of individual pursuit, but you're talking about statistics about people 10x more productive or effective in a you know a, a team environment, right? A supportive team uh, environment. A supportive environment. Right. Supportive. Yes. They don't have to be working. They don't have to be working together as a team. But at when they're obviously part of a sales team in their division or group or whatever else have you. And when they're supportive of each other and there's positive aspects to it, they're that much more productive than if they're a uh, crazy fire drill. Well, I, what I was digging at is I think there is value that's oftentimes overlooked by certainly frontline sales managers is to understand that that if you can develop this team ethos among your sales team, we, we use sales team, but really most people look at them as a collective of individuals, right? Right, like a baseball team. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> well, yeah, but even less so, right? There's at least team spirit. It's like, yeah, these are just 10 people that showed up for work today. They all happen to be in this office as opposed to right. these are team members that come in that you know, have common goals, mutually supportive, so on and so forth. And I, I think that part's not not developed enough. You're right. But that doesn't start with the team itself. The key to this is that the manager needs to one-on-one get to know their people personally. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. One of the, one of the things that uh, neuroscience is showing is that when people have an opportunity to share about themselves, you know, even going back to the basics of where do they grow up, you know, what kind of things that do they like doing as a kid? Tell us about your family. You, do you have, are you married? You got kids? Whatever have you? What do you like doing together? Those kinds of things. When people are talking about those kinds of things, the same part of the brain lights up as when they're eating something luscious, 
or having sex. Or both. Or both. <laughs> and, and, when that, and what happens is they feel so good about themselves, they feel so good about the person that's listening to them, that they begin to build trust with that individual. Then the manager can start working with them on focusing on what they're going to do in the, the job and the career and helping them progress. Mm-hmm. Once, once they have this relationship with each of the individuals, then they can bring the collective together and help them see how much they're alike and different and what values they bring to the team so that they can then cross help, help each other where one person might be strong, one person might be weak and be more effective. Okay. Yeah. yeah and I want to come back. I want to explore that in a little more depth. Uh, Cause we're going to come back and talk about uh, what you've written about seven fresh leadership skills. But, but before that, just talking about leadership in general, um, mm-hmm. So we're, in your opinion, I mean, you work with corporations all across the country is in leadership issues. So where do you think we fail our people most often in terms of leadership development? And I'm not talking about just ma- developing managers. I'm talking about, you know, developing leaders throughout the organization. Because, you know, to me, and I've written about this on multiple occasions, is, you know, to me, sales leadership starts with the individual. So, right. so how do we, where are we failing our people in terms of leadership development? I was talking with the CEO of a hospital recently. This this is not totally analogous, but I think it's points at it. They're so senior leadership is so focused on the numbers, and they typically have maybe five, ten, fifteen, twenty different sets of numbers that they're focused on that they have the managers focusing on. That managers seldom step out of that management role and be leaders. And if they don't step out of that management role and be leaders and coach and develop their employees to take step forward and be leaders in their roles, there's no examples. There's no experiences there for them to actually make that move in their career and develop those skills. All they're seeing is the quote-unquote manager of things, making sure that things are happening but they're not experiencing what it's like to be part of a group, have a manager that cares about them and really helps them grow their career and become effective at whatever they're doing or where they want to go in their career. So how are you distinguishing between management and leadership? Managers, well, I like to, I like to simp- simply say that managers manage things, leaders lead people. But in reality, managers have to do both roles. The problem is that no, oh, that never happened. My, my apologies. Just tell them we're not at home. Yeah, managers need to be able to lead people, and they don't do that. They spend more time on the numbers and the the mechanics of what they're supposed to be doing than actually inspiring people and helping them create a vision of where they're going. But and you sort of explained it before, though, when you're giving an example of talking to the CEO of the hospital, is, is he's not encouraging his people to be leaders. Well, actually, what he was saying was he's trying to get his people to be leaders because they used to have 50 items they were trying to track. Now they're down to 15. But still, that's still a lot of stuff to be tracking and not actually spending time with their people and helping their people be more effective. And deliver the kind of customer service they want them to have, the kind of patient experience they want them to have. The same thing is in sales. If, if a manager is only, only focused on the numbers, 
and the mechanics of what's going on, and they're not out there actually helping people deliver the kind of customer service, the kind of sales experience that's going to be successful for the organization, and helping them, helping the salespeople grow and become leaders and, and make those successful numbers, it's not going to happen. Or it's not going to happen as well as they'd like. Sure. So one, one thing that always seems to me is when we talk about leadership is that, and I don't see many companies do this, though certainly some do, is that it seems to me like when somebody's new on board a company and they're being onboarded and you know ramped up on their skill set or their sales or whatever, it seems like sort of almost concurrent with that is there should be some sort of leadership training they're enrolled in as well. I mean, it, it seems like one of the big problems we have is that we don't we don't encourage our individuals to be leaders, individual contributors to be leaders. And, and we need them to be. I mean, if you look at success stories of large organizations and small organizations, that oftentimes it's, you know, it's the actions of an individual that really make a difference or multiple individuals and that are demonstrating leadership that can transform a company. I agree. And I think that one of the challenges that goes along with that is that organizations have been so stressed for time, they don't want to send their employees to programs or even enroll them in anything that is going to take them away from the job because they want the numbers. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's a challenge. And, and, and the other side of the challenge, too, is I, I want to share the story of myself. Years ago, I was working for a large company in California, and I was getting my performance review. And there were a number of competencies they were measuring me on, and, and my boss said, okay, Steve, the first one I'm going to talk to you about is, is customer service. And she said, Steve, when it comes to customer service, you're off the charts. Your customers love you. I had a third of the salary population. I was in compensation at the time. And, and had a, because I was the only one of the top secret cleaners, I had a third of the salary population. And the other four reps had the other two-thirds. She, everything was off my desk every Monday. They, they loved me. And she said, I'm going to rate you as a fails-to-meet expectations on customer service. And I said, Why? She said two reasons. Number one, you're making your peers look bad. <laughs> and number two, your peers are ticked that you keep coming to them and asking if you can help them. It annoys them. Here I was trying to be a leader and help, and I was getting stepped on because of it. <laughs> well, I mean, but do you, do, you think that's, do you think that's an issue in corporations, that, that people that try to be leaders are squashed? I think sometimes they are. Not squashed necessarily, but... Uh, Suggested that they not stick their necks out. That's fascinating because, you know, I'm a huge advocate that I think one of the issues we have in the sales profession in general is, is that, you know, people are too by the books, you know, the, by the training they got or by the process they have, that they're so rigidly trying to conform to this process and, and managers who are more managers versus leaders who are sort of inexperienced, you know, their comfort level goes up if people are really conforming to the process as opposed to saying, look, this person has an individual set of skills and strengths, and how do I leverage them to help them optimize their performance? We and that goes, we just yeah, want to be able to fit in, a, right. fit in a form. Right, and that goes back to the getting to know your people and getting to know what their aspirations are and what they would like to do, what they're strong at, what they don't feel so strong at. Do you need to help them get stronger at some of those things, or do you want to leverage the things that they're really good at? And what that really brings passion to them. 
so that when they actually go out and do something, it's exciting. I was talking with a friend of mine who was at a conference not too long ago, and he said he sat through four presentations that were basically vendor presentations, and they did nothing but read from the slides. Mm-hmm. Okay, that isn't, that's following the book. Okay, that is not getting out there and getting people excited. That is not showing a passion about what you believe in. Yeah, you can't inspire. I mean, part of the reason I talk about sales as a, a leadership profession yeah. is because, you know, when you're selling, if you're doing it effectively, what you're doing is you're inspiring people to go on this journey with you. Right. And, people don't like and, to be sold, but they love to buy. And they love to be inspired and motivated. Right. So it seems like we, we back to the sort of earlier point, and then we're going to jump into your, your seven fresh leadership skills, is, is that we need to, we need to open, our, open the doors to people, you know, open the door of possibilities to our people very early in their careers and say, look, we need you to be a leader. Even if you're an individual contributor, I need you to be a leader. And mm-hmm. if they have that perspective, then my experience has shown is that, that people more often than not really respond to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about some. You identified some seven fresh leadership skills that you've written about that uh, sort of in concurrence with a, a book you've put out. So the first one you talk about emotional intelligence, and I guess my question was: Is emotional intelligence a skill? I mean, is this a an ingrained behavior aptitude, or is it something that you can teach somebody to acquire? Emotional intelligence can be learned. It just takes time, and the person's got to wanna, if you will. But emotional intelligence is really a, ser- a set of competencies that range everything from everything such as self-awareness, because a lot of people have no self-awareness about how they're affecting others, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let alone how they're being affected by others. They just react to being able to deal with ambiguity, to have self-control when they're in stressful situations, conflict management skills, the ability to lead, to inspire other people. Those are all emotional intelligence skills. The ability to interrelate with people so that they can be effective in developing relationships and not just be a slap on the back, tell a joke type of salesperson. And I know that's a stereotype that people hate but it's just the it's just the op, the opposite of what somebody who uses emotional intelligence is able to do. So back to sort of the, the key question though is you know how do we how do we train people though and in this because you're absolutely right I mean this is this is a a core skill set that's been written about extensively some new books out about uh, EQ and sales and mm-hmm. in various other fields very hard to find people who are going to disagree with the importance of it. But it seems like we have this, this issue of, about, you know, okay, well, how do, we, how do we take that from the page and make it a reality for someone? One of the things that I do is describe a specific behavior within a specific competency. So let's just take the example of self-awareness. If we want somebody to have more self-awareness of how they're affecting others, the behavior may be be aware of how people react when you talk to them in order to build strong relationships. Having done that then, I might give someone an assignment 
to go talk to somebody that they've had difficulty with in the past and actually focus on how that person's reacting as you're sharing what you're supposed to share. And think about, you know, what's their facial reaction? What, what are they doing physically? Are they receptive? Are they not receptive? But be aware of it. Mm-hmm. And then come back and let's talk about it. And then we do it over and over again as they develop that capability of being aware of what's going on. Because so often I've seen people in sales roles where they keep talking and the person's ready to buy, but they're not aware because all they're doing is they're going through their script and their stick. But if they were aware, they could stop. Right. Okay. And that would be a happy solution, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think to your example, too, about going and talking to somebody, and I think to me there's always a third element there, which is, is what's the payoff to you for having changed your behavior? If you go to someone and you, you know, talk to them about, you know, interact with them in a way that you, you know, is different than you did before, is there's got to be a payoff for you somehow, right? They either responded to you in a way that, that was different and more positive than it might have been in the past. Yeah, that that then becomes the reinforcement mechanism, right? Because if you get right, that, if you what, get if you get that payoff, then you can say, okay, yeah, I went the, this way once, no payoff. I don't want to do that. I want to change that behavior. What do I have to do? What do I say differently? How do I approach this person differently? How do I, you know, really listen as you talked about? And then if I do that, what is that payoff? And that's one of the reasons I said now we come back and talk about it, and then I can reward you when you talk about how the payoff really went. Mm-hmm. And commend you and acknowledge your efforts and then work, work on improving it more and more until you become more, it becomes more of a habit than just something you're focusing on. It becomes more instinctive. Right. And that's what you want. You want to become habitual. So another sort of key thing that you talk about, which I, to me is, is so important and, and don't see enough of, is leaders modeling the behavior that they want people to, to follow. You know, so the lead by example, yeah. and and this one, this one to me of of all of all of those that you wrote about, seem to be the one that that always sticks out to me the most is that, you know, oftentimes young young managers, uh, new managers, aren't as aware about the importance of leading by example, how, how critical that really is, and having that self awareness as you talked about to say, okay, I need to be very conscious, thoughtful, and deliberate about how I'm acting. And I think that that's one of the challenges that new new leaders particularly face is because they move from an individual contributor role where they have been basically running themselves, and now they have to engage others. And the first instinctive thing is to be either micromanager, controlling, or to do well. Which right, is driven driven by fear which is driven by fear of losing control or just giving up and letting everybody just run amok. So they need to, in addition to developing their people and getting to know their people, they need to set a standard for what is expected. One of my things, I have a GPS, if you will, of expectations that I have for me and the group. And my first expectation is call me out when I don't live up to my own expectations. I want my team to do that. 
Because sometimes I am not aware of when I'm not doing what I expect done. Seems like a hard ask for a lot of situations, though, right? To to have, <laughs> I mean, I I, th- I think you're right. I mean, great, but you know, for the managers that are not very self aware, it seems like uh, they would have a hard time getting that type of feedback. You know, it's interesting. There's research that shows that most people dislike feedback when it is un when it, yeah when it's unsolicited. In other words, if I came to you and gave you feedback about something you've done and you didn't ask for it, you're not going to be very receptive to it. But if I come to you and say, I want you to give me feedback about this, or in this case, I want you to give me feedback when I'm not living up to my own expectations of the group, it might be hard, but I've asked for it and I'm open to it. Well, and that's the key is, is if you do ask for it, you have to listen. Because I've, right. I've seen managers that do that before that, that say, yeah, I, I want to hear, right, if I'm not living up to the expectations we said, or right. you know, I've got an open door policy, you know, let me, yeah, they don't really want to hear. They but, might not want to hear, but this goes back to that trust thing. If you know your people and you trust your people and they trust you, when they give you feedback that, hey, Steve, you didn't do what you said you were going to do on this one. Yeah, okay, I agree with you. I didn't do what I should have done on this one. Let me see if I can make that right. Or, uh, yeah, I didn't, but there's a reason for it, and I'll, let me explain. So at least you have the ability to have a conversation. And people need to be open to feedback. And a lot of people, most people want feedback. They just don't want it unsolicited. Well, I think sometimes managers have the issue that they don't want to receive it from people that work for them. Because that's, perceived on their part as a failing. And I think that that what you know, people in leadership roles or let's say management roles that should be in leadership roles don't understand is, you know, this vulnerability and this humility is actually a, a, a really key, key strength they need to, to, to develop. And, I, and one, of the, one of my premises is none of us knows everything, so be open and willing to learn from others. And I don't, exp- I don't think I know everything. So if I'm called out because I didn't live up to my own expectation or somebody says, you know, there might be a better way of doing that. Okay, let's listen to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So another one of your core issues, which we, we had talked about, core skills, excuse me, we had talked about before is listen, listen, listen in terms of listen to your people, know what they want to achieve, learn from them, but, I, you know, spot on. Now, the one thing that I thought was sort of tricky. And, and you talk about selecting winners or hiring the right team as a skill. And I have to admit, I mean, based on a lot of what I've been reading recently, um, hiring still seems like luck versus skill to some degree. Um, yeah, the problem, the problem is that most of the time, most interviewers are wrong in their impressions. Yeah, I mean, there was, a, there was an article in the New York Times I've brought up on the show a couple times uh, I don't know, a month or two ago, called the utter uselessness of job interviews, where, <laughs> where research has been done showing that that uh, you know with, with candidates that you're actually you actually do a better job of selecting people that uh, will be successful just by looking like at the numbers as opposed to actually having an interview with them. Right. the The reason for that is, 
and I hate to say it this way, but all of us are biased. Sure, sure. And we all have our biases. And the challenges, this is, this is where a lot of people say, oh, Steve, I'm not biased. 95% of our biases are subconscious. And the only way to be effective in the interview process and selecting the right kind of person is to have a structured process where you identify specific competencies that you need to have for specific behaviors and have interview questions to measure those behaviors and do it in a way that you keep the candidates honest and you are specifically looking for information and not making a judgment about the information you're getting as you get it. You're just basically recording it. And then you go back and evaluate it against the definitions and the expectations for that job to see if it's a match. Or maybe not. I remember not long ago, I was talking with a friend of mine. I had taught her to, to go through the interview process. And she said, Steve, I have two candidates coming in. On paper, one of them looked perfect. And that was the one I thought I was going to hire. But when I followed your system, we went through the interview, it turned out the other person was the perfect fit. And if I'd gone with my gut, I would have made the wrong hiring decision. Because there were a lot of red flags that came out when I was interviewing the person that I thought was going to be the perfect fit. That if I just gone with my intuition, they would have been the one. Right. So you said assess competency. So use assessment tools or develop your own tests to be able to specifically measure for the, the competencies you need in the job. Um, make it as factual as data-based as opposed to gut-based. Right. I remember I had an interviewer working for me one time. Her name was Tonya. Great lady. Good interviewer. And one day she was just in playing a bad mood. It was the end of the day. She was tired. She had this candidate coming in to be a sales engineer. And she did the interview. She didn't like him. And she basically cut the interview short. And it was over. She came in and she talked to me about it. And I said, you know, Tonya, that really wasn't very fair, was it? And she said, no, it wasn't. I just having a bad day. So I said, well, call him back, schedule another interview, and do it again. And she did. And at the end of the day, she did the system. She got the information. Ended up hiring the guy. And the guy turned out to be a great sales engineer. They're working for a tech company. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was one of those things where... It, it, our biases, our moods, whatever else you have, you can all negatively impact the interview, and it's not the candidate's fault. Yeah, which speaks to the importance of having, as you said, a, a very standardized process. If you have multiple multiple people interviewing, everybody should be asking the same questions, because uh, then you got you got a common set of data that you can use to evaluate people that lend some objectivity to the process, which is well, me, is difficult. Let me just say this though: a lot of organizations. Everyone's asking the same questions, but they're the wrong questions. They're well, tell me about yourself, what are your strengths and weaknesses, what did you like about granted, your last job. You know, yeah. they're, they're asking the wrong questions. But when you have a set of specific questions about specific behaviors and competencies, and they're, uh, they're, they're based upon past experiences, and you make sure you're getting specific information from those candidates about that experience, 
now you're going from a, a reliability of predicting job success of about 14% to a more of a reliability that in my system of over 90% and being able to predict the success of candidates. That's, that's where it kind of takes the, the guesswork out of it. And to your point, most interviews are worthless. Yeah. Yeah. If you do it right, it can be very effective. Got it. Excellent. Well, good. Well, Stephen, it's been a great conversation. Glad to have you on. Fortunately, we got to well, leave you. right now. So tell folks how they can learn more about you and connect with you. Well, they can go to www.actioninsight.com, or you can call me at 303-439-2001. My email address is stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at actioninsight.com. All right. Excellent. Well, again, Stephen, thanks for joining us. Friends, thank you for spending this time with me today. Please make sure you join me again tomorrow for the next great episode of Accelerate. Uh, until then, if you can, take a minute. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to this podcast or go to on iTunes or whatever app you use and leave us a review. And um, yeah, thanks for joining us. And so until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>